On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered these words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. But Peter, he rose and he ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, peace be with you. And he is risen. I told people you guys were going to be the most subdued. Uh, the 11th third it always is. And you proved it right. Come on. He is risen. There you go. You are my favorites. I'm just saying subdued at times. Um, I want to begin with a quote from Jack Nicholson. And I recognize that I'm probably the only pastor in the country opening a sermon with a quote from Jack Nicholson. But, but hear this quote and tell me if it doesn't resonate with you. Here's what Nicholson said. He said, I used to live so freely. The mantra for my generation was, be your own man. I always said, hey, you can have whatever rules you want. I'm going to have mine. I'll accept the guilt. I'll pay the check. I'll do the time. I chose my own way. That was my philosophical position well into my 50s. As I've gotten older, I've had to adjust. I'm naive emotionally. I can't bear the number of funerals you go to once you get older. I have to find a way to adjust to loss or sentence myself to a life of grieving. We all want to go on forever, don't we? We fear the unknown. Everybody goes to that wall, yet nobody knows what's on the other side. That's why we fear death. What we celebrate today is the fact that there is one who's gone to the wall, the one who's gone over the wall, and one who's come back. What we celebrate today is that, that we don't just have to settle for a life of grieving. What we celebrate today is that we don't have to fear death because Jesus Christ, he was crucified on a Friday that night. He was laid in a tomb. And then there was the Saturday, the longest Saturday in history where, where nothing came out of the tomb and no one moved and, and the disciples were discouraged and distressed. And then Sunday morning, Jesus got up walked out of the grave and changed the course of human history forever. That's what we celebrate today. And that's the claim. And yeah, we can clap for that. And the text that we get to look at this morning is actually an account of what happened that morning. So we don't actually have an account of Jesus walking out of the tomb. What we have are accounts of the risen Lord, and we have this account of the women going to the tomb after the resurrection. And there's so much in this text, so much hope, 
so much honesty. And so we're going to dive in and we're going to look at it under three headings. I want to look first at this text talks about the challenge and it shows us the challenge of the resurrection. Then it holds before us the claim and then it, it also holds before for us a call, uh, a call to respond. But beginning with the challenge, what, what I mean when I say the challenge of the resurrection is that the resurrection has always been hard to believe. That it wasn't like 2,000 years ago, people walked around and just thought, hey, dead people come back to life. The resurrection has always been an intellectual challenge for people. And I love this text for its honesty, because in verse 1, Luke tells us, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that's this group of women who are disciples of Jesus, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, we know these women were not going to the tomb expecting the resurrection. That's not why they're there. They're going to finalize Jesus' burial, hence the spices. You see, two men had buried Jesus on Friday night, and the women went to go check their work, you know, and clean up whatever they didn't get right. And they, went, they go to honor the death of Jesus. And then when they get there, and the stones rolled away, and the tomb's empty, the women, they don't shout, we knew it! We knew he was going to rise. That's why we got up so early, because we wanted to be the first ones here. No, when they get to the tomb and it's empty, we're told they were perplexed and they were confused. And they're not perplexed wondering, did Jesus die or didn't he die? What they're perplexed about, what they're confused over is what happened to the body. Did the Romans take him, take the body or did the Jews take the body? It wasn't even on their minds that maybe Jesus had risen. And then the angel appears, speaks a word to them, and then they run back and they tell the apostles about what they'd seen, about what they'd encountered with the angels. And we're told that as they told these, these women told these words to the, the apostles, the words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe. All right, so if there was anyone who was going to believe in the resurrection, it would be the apostles, right? These are the guys who had seen and witnessed the miracles of Jesus. They watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had even said, I am going to die and come back to life. If anyone was going to believe the resurrection, it would be these guys, and they didn't. And so the question is, why? Why, why is the resurrection such a challenge? And the answer is actually pretty simple. Because in this world, dead people don't come back to life. In this world, dead people stay dead. You know, growing up, my dad, he was a science teacher. And one of the things he drilled in my head over and over again was the second law of thermodynamics, which it sounds really fancy and complicated, but the second law of thermodynamics is actually pretty simple. What the law states is that everything in life moves from a place of order to a place of disorder. That everything moves from order to chaos. That things are winding down, things are breaking down, and things are falling apart. And so growing up, anytime something would break in the house, anytime something would wear out, anytime we'd have to get new tires on the car, my dad would say, well, there's the second law of thermodynamics at work. No wonder I didn't have any friends growing up, right? Uh, but it was a valuable lesson. You know why? Because the older you get, the reality of that law 
becomes clear and clear. And the feeling, the weight of living under that, that law where everything is breaking down and everything is falling apart. It becomes clear and clear. You know, Seth Lloyd, he's a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT. He said this, he said, nothing is certain in life except death, taxes, and the second law of thermodynamics. Now, according to the Bible, that's actually a bit redundant because according to the Bible, the second law of thermodynamics, it's actually just another word for death. Because according to the Bible, death is not just an event that marks the end of your life. According to the Bible, death is a force, an alien force that is at work in this world, that is bringing about decay. In Genesis 1, when God creates the world, there was no death, there was no decay. Everything was good. Everything was good all the time. And then in Genesis 2, God tells Adam You are free to eat from any tree in the garden because our God is a generous God. And he says, whatever you want, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So God says, you eat of this tree, it's gonna kill you. And we all know in Genesis three, Adam and Eve, they eat from the fruit, but they don't die. At least not on the spot. What does that mean? What does that tell us? It means that death It's not just an event that marks the end of your life. Death is an ever-present yet alien force. It's an invasive species, you could say, and God's good creation that is destroying everything in its path. It's why our cars break down and our homes deteriorate. It's why companies break apart, careers fall apart, relationships fall apart. It's why our bodies fall apart. It's why flowers fade. It's why mountains are eventually reduced to pebbles. Death, it's inevitable in our world. Now, now, sure, if you live a Whole30 CrossFit young living life, you might be able to slow it by a couple of months. But you can't stop it. And you certainly can't reverse it. <laughs> and so when the angel asked the women, why are you looking for the living among the dead? The answer, the obvious answer is, Because Jesus is not alive, he's dead. Because we watched him die. We saw the spear run through his side. We saw the water and blood flow. And if we know anything about this world, dead people stay dead. They don't come back to life. Now, I love the honesty of Luke here. And if you're a person who who struggles to believe the resurrection, I want you to see Man, you're in good company. The disciples, the apostles, they struggled to believe as well. If you're here and you're a Christian, you've never struggled to believe the resurrection. I wonder if you're being honest. I wonder if you've ever actually seriously considered the claim. Maybe you were raised in a home or church where doubts were stifled with stern looks and the command to just believe. And that's a toxic version of Christianity that teaches you to kind of just put, put your beliefs over here and don't question them. It's not healthy. Christianity is rooted in the truth. That's the claim. And so if it's in the truth, we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. But some of you, maybe you're taught to never ask questions. And so you've never been challenged by the resurrection. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. Contemplate the ridiculousness of the claim. 
that a guy was dead for a few days and then he came back to life. Because if you do, if you're willing to do that, you might experience the resurrection in a deeper and more profound way than you've ever experienced it before. Because it's only when you've really wrestled with the challenge of the resurrection that you can begin to understand the claim, what the resurrection's all about. Look at what the angel says to the women in verse 6. The angel, after saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? He says, he, that's Jesus, is not here, but has risen. And then he says this, remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I love that the angel doesn't say he is not here, but he has risen. Stop doubting and believe. Why are you standing there with your jaws open? No, the angel actually explains because it is confusing. And a lot of us, we approach the resurrection like it's this cosmic magic trick where God flaunted his power and we don't understand necessarily how the resurrection plays into everything else in the Bible. But what the angel reveals to us here and what we see in this text is that the resurrection was a part of God's plan and design all along, that Jesus knew it all along, that the resurrection was actually Jesus fulfilling the work he came to this earth to do. What was that work? Well, it was to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. It was to be crucified. And on the third day, it was to rise from the dead. And so this is confusing. If you're not familiar with the Bible, why why is Jesus being delivered into the hands of men? Why is he being crucified? What is all of this about? Well, death and decay at their root, the source of those things is sin. You know, we talk about sin as turning from God, as being cut off from God, maybe an illustration that can help us. Uh, Sin is us unplugging from God. And it's a decision every single one of us has made that we want to go through life unplugged. And we might be able to continue for a little while. We might be able to go 70 or 80 years or 90 years. But eventually we're going to run out of gas. Eventually we're going to run out of juice. And the great judgment of sin is that once you unplug from God, you can't just go plug back in. When Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, God put an angel there with a sword guarding the way back in. Only way you're going to come back into the garden is if you come under the sword. And then Jesus shows up. He's a guy who never never unplugged. I mean, he is God. He's second member of the Trinity. Jesus shows up, and he lives this glorious life where he heals the hurting and the broken and the distressed and the oppressed. And then a bunch of sinful people arrest him, they try him, and they crucify him. Why? So that Jesus could be our substitute. So that Jesus could take the source of death, which is sin, on his shoulders and even in his bowels, in our place, that it might explode in him. Jesus, maybe the way to think about it, is that angel who's guarding Eden with the sword, Jesus went in and fell under the sword. He took the punishment, but he didn't stay dead. He rose, and when he rose, he proved that 
that death, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him because he's the author of life. And so the reason Jesus died, it's really important, and the cross is incredibly important because the cross represents that should be me and that should be you. That should be all of us for all of our sin and rebellion. We deserve judgment, but Jesus took it. But the empty tomb, the resurrection, the claim of that is that not just has sin been dealt with, but that death has been dealt with. That decay has been dealt with. The claim of the empty too is that death, it's defeated. The second law of thermodynamics actually isn't a law. It's a principle we live under right now, but there's coming a day when that principle is no longer going to exist. The claim of the resurrection is that death is temporary and life is eternal. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world where there is no death or decay? Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world where things don't fall apart and don't wear down and they don't break down? I don't know about you, but you know, I'm still young in a lot of ways. But gosh, I'm tired. I'm tired of broken relationships. I'm tired of seeing doctors. I'm tired. You know, and this is one of the hazards of my job. I'm tired of going to funerals and to hospitals, not because I don't want to be with people, but because I'm so tired of living in this world where everything is falling apart. The claim of the resurrection is that there is a world waiting for us that has no darkness, no disease, no depression, or anxiety, or decay, or death. There's, There's a world coming to us in which everything will hold together. Our bodies will hold together. Our relationships will hold together. Everything will be new. And it will be new eternally. That's the claim. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't die. Jesus himself said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So he's obviously talking about death and life in a deeper sense than we think about them because he says, even though you die, you're going to live. He says, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And what he's saying there is we'll never end up being just eroded into nothingness. If we're in Christ, we're not going to wear down, break down, and fall apart until there's nothing left of us. The claim of the resurrection is that death will be swallowed up by life. And so how do you respond to this? Well, some of you here, some of you here, you're not struggling to believe the resurrection. You've just flat out written it off as nonsense. Like you hear this and you're like, it's just nonsense. It's, it's a fairy tale. Um, and, you know, I, I could walk you through all the arguments. I could walk you through all the evidence. And I can give you books to read. And the arguments, they're sound. The evidence, it's compelling. But here's what I've come to realize. If you don't want to believe in the resurrection, you're not going to believe in the resurrection. If you don't want to believe in it, you won't believe in it. 
And so the question I want to hold before you is not a question about your belief. Will you believe in this? It's a question about desire. The question I want to hold before you is, don't you want this to be true? Like, let's just set aside the claim for a second. Don't you want to live in a world without decay? Don't you want to live, live forever? Don't you want to keep going on and enduring you know, Stephen King, who is no believer in the resurrection, writes, and I'll warn you, this is pretty bleak, but, but it's important. He says, every religion lies. Every moral precept is a delusion. Even the stars are a mirage. The truth is darkness, and the only thing that matters is making a statement before one enters it, cutting the skin of the world and leaving a scar. That's all history is, after all. Scar tissue. Well, it's a bit blunt. If there is no resurrection, King's right. If there is no resurrection, then in the end, truth is nothing but darkness. If there is no resurrection, yeah, it's all meaningless. Because we're just a random collection, a random accident and collision of the universe, a byproduct of the universe. Now, the only problem, it's logical, it's, it's logically consistent. The only problem with this is, the only problem with this kind of approach to life is, is it doesn't connect with our desires at all. It doesn't resonate with us at all. Not a single one of us wants to believe that the truth is nothing but darkness. Not a single one, not, not one of us wants to believe that death is the end. Not one of us wants to believe that our lives, our work, our families, everything we've given ourselves to is nothing more than scar tissue on a cold universe. No one wants to believe that. And the reason we don't want to believe that is because God has placed eternity into our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 says so. The reason this doesn't resonate with our desires is because God gave us desires for something greater. C.S. Lewis, in contrast to Stephen King, says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so let me tell you, if, you, if you're a person you've written off the resurrection as nonsense, don't examine the evidence. Examine your desires. And after you've examined your desires, then go to the evidence. The evidence is compelling. Historians will all agree that 2,000 years ago, something happened that changed the world. But if you haven't examined your desires, you can't even say, no, I want this to be true. If you can't do that, you're never going to actually do the hard work. You're never going to do the hard work of investigating. You're never going to read a book because it's 300 pages, and you think, well, that's just too long when we're talking about the turning point of human history. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, the question for you is not, do you believe the tomb is empty? The question I want to hold before you is, are you marveling at it? Peter, he's the only one, and he runs to the tomb. 
and he sees the evidence. He goes to the tomb, he looks at the evidence, and we're told that he went home marveling at what had happened. And I think this is a word for us. Because something I've noticed in the American church and the Christian culture is that when we talk about the resurrection, we put almost all of our energy and all of our emphasis on the apologetics of it, the historical reality of it. Here are the facts. Here's what we know. And don't get me wrong, that's, that's really important work. If there was not a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus, then our faith is absolutely worthless. But, the empty tomb, the empty tomb, it's not ultimately a crime scene that needs to be investigated. The empty tomb, it's a wonder that needs to be marveled at. It's a life-changing, world-changing wonder that needs to be marveled at. I mean, the promise, the hope that is there, if it's true, it changes everything. And I can't help but wonder if the American church sometimes is so pathetic and it's so weak and it's so divisive and so self-centered and so self-absorbed. I can't help but wonder if that's because, you know, we look at the cross and we say Jesus died for us and then we look at ourselves. And we don't marvel at the fact that the tomb is empty. And that, because the tomb is empty, we got a whole host of promises with that. One of the promises Paul tells us in Romans 8 is that the same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies right now. So if you are in Christ, the same spirit that rose him from the dead is at work in you. And what this means is all the, all the things of death and decay in your life, the pain, the confusion, the exhaustion and weariness that comes from just the grind of life. The, the health issues you're facing, the unhealthy emotions, the destructive habits and addictions, all of those things, all of that death and decay that resides in your body right now will one day be done away with. All of it will one day be swallowed up by life. Now think about that. If that's true, <laughs> then why in the world is it so easy for the world to get to you? If that's true, why is it so easy for the different experiences of death and decay in the world to utterly knock you to the ground? If our great hope is that our worst enemy, which is death, the greatest enemy, which is death, it's been defeated, then why in the world do we let, you know, the, the last few thrashes of death that come into our life rob us and steal from us the joy that we have in the one who conquered death? You know, there should be this, this resiliency and this furious hope. Because hear me, I'm not saying we should be naive. And I think the resurrection actually is one of the greatest arguments about Christian naivety. The resurrection is very real about suffering. So I'm not saying we should be naive, you know, happy, clappy, sleep with hangers in our mouths so we can always smile all the time when we get up. Like what I'm saying is we should be able to engage in this world with reality. Knowing that death is reality but knowing that death does not have the final say. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You know what he's doing there? He's taunting death. He's mocking it. He's saying, what do you have, death? 
Oh, you're going to kill me. Yeah, well, I know the author of life, and I know the one who conquered you, and who's going to put you in the ground for good sooner than later. So even if you kill me, I'll rise. Guess what would happen if we walked with that kind of reality in our mind? What happened? What would happen? If we would be a people who would not just stare at the cross, but we would marvel at the empty tomb. Think of the kind of power we would have, the courage we would have, and the hope we would have. As we move to communion, this is a meal of remembrance, but it's also a meal of hope. We remember Jesus Christ's body broken for our sins. He bore the penalty of our sin. But this meal, it's also, it's also a meal of hope, a meal of anticipation. Because we're told that when Jesus comes back, and deals the final blow to death, that we're going to share a meal with him. We're going to sit down and share a meal with him. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, that's offensive to some Baptist, so I apologize if you're Baptist, but Jesus says in Matthew 26, he says, I tell you, he's with his disciples, he's drinking wine with them, and he says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I love that verse because I take it literally. You ever had a really fancy bottle of wine? You're like, you're not going to drink it. You're going to save that thing for the, the, the greatest of occasions. Jesus saying, I've got the fanciest vintage of wine and I'm eager to tap into it, but I'm going to leave it sitting here until you can come and you can feast with me. And so when, when we come to the Lord's table, that's us remembering Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed, but it's also remembering that and this is just a foretaste of what's in store for those who hope in him. So if you're here and you're a Christian, even if you're visiting with us, we encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper. The way we do it here is you tear off a piece of bread and you can dip it in either wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal. And I really want you to hear me on this. It's not because we want to exclude you. It's because we don't want you to, to have this experience and miss the meaning of it. It's because this is a meal for people. Everyone who's taking part in it, there are people who are saying, I deserve judgment and Jesus bore my judgment. My blood deserved to be shed and his blood was shed for me. And so instead of taking part in the meal, we want you to take part in him. Let me pray.